It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 714, that's 714, of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Joining me is my guest, David Massover. Now, David's the author of a book titled The Salesman's Guide to Dating, a sales book about making connections with an unexpected twist, which is absolutely true. And uh, David is joining me today from his office in Budapest, Hungary. So we're going to start talk a little bit about David's journey from the U.S. and how does he end up being this uh, well-known sales expert based in Hungary. And then we're going to delve into our sort of core topic that we're going to talk about today, which are sort of the, back on the fundamentals and the basics. And one of the key questions we want to get into is how do we successfully develop new generations of sellers without having to go back and reinvent the wheel every time a new cadre of sellers enters the workforce. And we're also going to talk about how do we educate sellers to develop their own style or framework, as David talks about it, their own style of selling. You know, something that's authentic to you, that enables you to sell and win up to your potential. So, yeah, it might be based on methodology, it might be based on certain skills and behaviors, but it's, it's something that's unique and authentic to you that really resonates with the buyer. So how do you develop that? So you want to make sure you stick around for this. Now, before we get to David, I want to take a quick second to talk about the sales house. That's my sales performance accelerator for B2B sellers. Now, in the typical sales training, you learn a lot of things with the exception of how to win. You know, in sales, winning orders is not the result of your process or the methodology you use. It comes from doing a lot of small things extremely well. Now, in the sales house, I focus on teaching you the strategies, behaviors, techniques, and skills you don't learn in sales training, but that will make a huge difference in your ability to win new business. I mean, you may know how to build a relationship with a prospect, but do you know the four core relationships, relationship skills that will enable you to accelerate building a trust-based relationship with any buyer? Or perhaps you've been trained how to do a discovery call, but do you know the two most important pieces of information you need to learn from your prospects? Because knowing these will make the huge difference between winning and losing, and you haven't been trained on that. You've been coached how to qualify an opportunity, but do you know the one agreement you need to reach with your prospect before they can be considered truly qualified. And if you have that agreement, it will increase your odds of winning the deal. You know, if you're not up to speed on all these things, then you're at a competitive disadvantage and the sales house is the resource you need to reach the next level and the level above that. Members get unlimited access to checklists, playbooks, courses, coaching, mentoring, and an engaged community to help you sell with more confidence, trust, and acumen. So come learn. How to become the winningest version of you in the sales house. Visit thesaleshouse.com. That is thesaleshouse.com. All right, let's jump into it with my guest, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. So, you are our first guest joining us from Budapest, Hungary. Wow. And, and I'm not even Hungarian. And you're Isn't not even terrible? Hungarian. When my wife is half Hungarian. So, uh, my wife is all the way Hungarian. Is she? Okay. Question that's following, right? All right. So, why are you there, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the short answer is she was pretty. The, the, the long answer usually requires several drinks, but you know, we probably don't want to go there today. All right. Well, you and I will have to do the drink sometime. But, but did you meet your wife here in the States or did you meet her in Hungary? So, I met my first wife in the States. 
And mm-hmm. she was from Hungary. We met in San Francisco back in 2001. And uh, she had never lived in Hungary as an adult. She moved to the States to, to go to university and then law mm-hmm. school. And then we met and we got married and we decided, you know, if she didn't live in Hungary at some point as an adult, she would always feel like she was missing something in her life. Sure. In 2004, we decided, okay, let's go for two years. And, you know, that was 14 years ago. Since then, a whole lot of life has happened, you know, kids and divorces and remarriages. And, you know, that, that's the part where the drinks come in, but, but that's how I got here. All right. So you're year 14 of your two-year plan. Year 14 See, of my two-year plan, yes. Okay. Well, I'm just – I've talked about this, <laughs> and my wife does listen to my podcast occasionally, so she'll hear this too. But I got uh, remarried. Second, married for a second time in 2010, moved from San Diego here to, to New York, where I am today in my New York office. And uh, yeah, we had a two-year plan to move from New York to San Diego full-time. Mm-hmm. And we're in year nine of our two-year plan. <laughs> to, Welcome to the club. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, my wife. Vicky will be glad to hear that there's more than one of us. <laughs> well, well, you know the old joke. Do you know how to make God laugh? They make plans, right? Yeah. Tell your plans, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, are you in, uh, most important question, are you in Buddha or Pesht? I'm in Buddha. Okay. You're in Buddha. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Have you been here? Because it's mostly people who have been here that know to ask that question. No, I haven't been there, but I, I'm aware of the fact that it was two cities. But uh, as I said, my wife's father was Hungarian, okay. uh, left left the country right before World War II. And yeah. uh, so she's been back. And she, actually, she was there just a year or so ago. She was lecturing in Bratislava in Slovakia uh-huh. and uh-huh. hadn't been to Budapest for a while. So she went, took the opportunity to go. So. Well, All right, listeners are coming to the neighborhood. Drop me a line; I'd be happy to show you around. That'd be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. So, uh, okay, we're going to talk about sales. Now there you go. Now we've, uh, now we've covered are, geography, right? People are accustomed to little digressions here and there on the show. All right. Well, we did that. We did that. So, let's talk about a topic you and I talked about previously, which is, you know, why does it seem like every time we get a new generation of of sellers into the mix that we sort of seem to be starting over again, that, that we're sort of recreating the wheel. Why isn't there sort of this ethos that, <laughs> that sort of should permeate the environment now that, you know, is, is why does it seem like we're still after literally 130 years, roughly of modern American selling sort of starting in the 1890s with national cash register why are we still every time? Yeah, you know, most of the selling tra- sales training is still about, you know, asking good questions, being curious about the other person. I mean, it keeps me employed, but, <laughs> it, you know, why are we still having to teach these things? I, I think that's a great question. And I, I think the, the, the really honest answer is I don't know when it frustrates me. I, I have some theories, but it, it, well, it's strange. Give, give us a theory. Well, you know, the reason that I think it's strange is because there's just so much information now. I mean, when I first started in sales, I started. I had my first sales job in 1991, mm-hmm. and it was it was tough. I, I had no background in sales. Nobody in my family was in sales. Sure. Yeah, me neither. Like, it was like, here's a day of product training. There's your desk. Good luck, buddy. I mean, what were really, you selling? I was selling um, computer supplies, discs and ribbons. You remember those little balls that you put on top of your IBM Selectric? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pure commodities, right? Sure. Brutal. 
And, you know, I didn't know what to do and I didn't know where to go. Luckily, one of my peers, one of my colleagues gave me an audio cassette. That's how long ago it was. Mm -hmm. A cassette copy of Brian Tracy's Psychology of Selling. And it was totally over my head. He kept talking about closing. I'm not kidding you, Andy. I did not know what he meant by the word close. I mean, that's how lost I was. I'm like, what is that? why do they keep saying that, you know? But now, I mean, fast forward to 2019, there's so much information, so many great books, great content, great podcasts. All, and, and yet, um, I, I talk to many people who are our colleagues, who are, are you know, Salesforce development consultants or, or whatever they call themselves, and you, and you walk into a company and... The problems are core, basic, fundamental problems. And I, and I don't know why they haven't been solved. One theory would be that, that I think that many times the basics are assumed away. I mm-hmm. think that there, there's this, this kind of fundamental mystery around sales and selling. It, it's kind of like finance. You know, Money isn't that difficult to understand, but people kind of don't want to talk about it. So they don't understand it and they just let their finance guy sure. take care of it. And I think sales is similar. If you're not in sales and, you know, too many people who are, they don't want to really think about it. They just want to hire someone who's going to do it and kind of hope it gets done. And so you wind up with these, these company cultures that just don't have a, this, this, this passion for learning, this passion for studying. You see some of it, but not enough. And I think there's a, there's a, lack of focus on just the core basics. You know, we're all looking for the magic bullet or the super tech or the fancy technique or the perfect cadence or the, you know, the, the millions of calls that have been analyzed mm-hmm. to tell us what to say. It's like, no, you know, the, 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 the truth is just more fundamental than that. And I don't think enough people start there. That would be my theory about one possible theory about why this problem keeps repeating is lack of focus on the basics and fundamentals. And it seems like, to me, that it's being compounded a bit uh, by technology these days, that we're giving people, sellers, the impression that, yeah, yeah, if you're a little deficient in this area, if you're having a hard time connecting with someone, making that initial connection, engaging their interests, that, yeah, we're going to be able to handle that with, you know, either our bot will take that to a certain point, then hand it off to you, but, and, and I think that's a false promise, I mean, certainly AI is improving on many fronts, but AI is really bad at empathy. <laughs> for example. <laughs> for instance. And will continue to be so for the foreseeable future. And that's one that's you know, hugely complex. If they can master empathy, then true empathy, then that's, uh, that'll be really interesting. But uh, I don't think I'll have to worry about that in my career. But, <laughs> but. Yeah, I think, again, there's, people are sort of being seduced into thinking that, that technology can handle that. And so I think what we see, especially the way we see some sales organizations structured these days with the increased our specialization, is that, yeah, we're sort of reinforcing this in some ways, that, that some of these things just aren't important, that we can handle things sort of in quantity, makes up for sort of the lack of quality in some areas, mm-hmm. where it really doesn't. But um, what's your thought? I, I, you know, I think technology is really interesting, and I'm not a technology guy. I've been close to technology for a lot of my life, but I'm a sales guy. You know, hey, you sold electric typepads. Oh my gosh! <laughs> listen, you know, I, I founded a dot com startup company, but you know, it's 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 still a sales focus. But I, I, I think the 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 dimension that that technology is currently bringing into sales is this idea that 
that kind of we can break it down into a into a process that's that's very finite and sequenced and and you know i think people have been trying to do that for a long time i know i tried to do that early in my career i thought okay i'm going to script out every possible answer that somebody says and i think a lot of people have tried to do that mm-hmm. i'm brave enough to admit it you know hi i'm, <laughs> I'm a closet call script or whatever right but you know most people who who stick with sales kind of through that part where it's rough and they're trying to figure it out come to realize that it's about people and Yes, there should be kind of a framework, and yes, there are some some best practices, and yes, there are some some things that you can do consistently, kind of at a framework level. But at the end of the day, it's about people, and if that part can't get injected into a technology process, the technology process is always going to be limited. But the technology process is very sexy, right? I mean, it's compelling. It's got sure. a compelling value proposition. Yeah. And, and and I think that sometimes we can get a little bit carried away that like, wow, their AI analyzed a million calls. And if I say um three times, I'm lost. But if it's only two, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's probably true. But uh, no, it's actually probably not. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> but either yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like it might be a fact, but like I, I think Dan Pink in his famous TED talk uh, made the made the distinction between facts and, and true facts. So mm-hmm. uh, that might be a fact, but I don't think it's a true fact. Yeah. Yeah, well it's uh, it's <laughs> you can correlate something to everything. Yeah, right? exactly. And there's been famous studies done about that where you can take I think there's one I was reading about in a book, uh called Every Data, which is a great book about how we misuse data. And yeah, I think they, they something about you know, there's a correlation between the number of lawyers in Samoa and like the murder rate in San Francisco. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah, you can draw correlations everywhere, but yep. yeah, there's no cause. Yep. There's actually a website. It's called Spurious Correlations. I don't know yeah. if it's still up, but uh, I know they correlated, I think, margarine consumption and divorce rate in Delaware. It's like, Okay, yeah. there you go, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think actually, I, well, it's based on a book, I think. And I think, I'm not sure if the website's still up, but the, the book is still available. Yep. So, well, so it seems like we, for at least to me, it seems like we're sort of going about how we're building our sales processes a little bit backwards. Interesting your take about this. Because you, you wrote about sales process when you're relating your experience out of McDonald's. And was that McDonald's in, in Budapest? It was McDonald's in Budapest. They're, okay. they're all it's pretty much the same here. All right. All right. They just don't have pancakes for breakfast, but otherwise it's pretty much the same. Okay. Um, and what do they call like the Big Mac? You know, it's not the Royale or the they, Quarter they, Pounder. Uh, yeah, no, the, yeah, that's from a, what's that movie? A Pulp Fiction, right? You know, right, you right. They right. have a Quarter Pounder in Europe because they don't have pounds. So it's the. Right. the, the, the well, in France, it's the Royale, yeah. Yeah, here's the Shaitosh McRoyal or something. Shaitosh. <laughs> but yeah it's something like that anyway all right but yeah i mean the reason that i you know i i actually discovered the sales process all by myself this is you know i I did yeah kind of you know kind of like al gore invented the internet yeah yeah right after i figured out what uh closing was Mm -hmm. i i started thinking you know how am i going to figure out the sales thing my dad was a scientist i'm like okay Mm -hmm. i'll experiment so i looked at this big thing called sales and i started chopping it up into pieces and, you know, okay, so what do I do first? And, you know, who do I target? And what do I say? And what do I do next? And, and before I knew it, I had this thing. And, and, and then one day somebody told me, yeah, that's called the sales process. And I'm like, wow, cool. Like, I invented, I invented it. it. <laughs> like, no, you didn't. But, you know, I thought of it. And, you know, like, 
it's funny because now in hindsight, so many years later, I think I would have called it a framework instead of a process. Mm-hmm. Because I think the word process, uh, I don't think it's misleading. I think it's a good word. But I think it's a word that kind of takes people to a place that's a little bit more granular than you want to think about this stuff. Yeah, well, I think a process assumes a logical conclusion, which rarely happens, and <laughs> which which I think is one of the the problems. The framework, I think, is is interesting, but I, my point was, it seems like again today, as we see companies, I believe, is engineering the process the wrong way. And let me give you an example. So, yeah, we know in the SaaS business that. They devote a tremendous amount of time and effort to top of the funnel activities, generating a ton, ton of leads, but the close rate at the, the back end is pretty, pretty low. And, but they've accepted that because, hey, as long as we can get opportunities at the top of the funnel and really good at that, then we'll accept this percentage, these conversion percentages. But to me, it's like, yeah, but oh, there's so much waste and inefficiency and ineffectiveness throughout that whole thing. To me, it's sort of criminal. Is why not start the other end and say, okay, instead of saying we're going to close one out of every five opportunities, let's set the stake in the ground that we're going to close, we're going to go out and do our initial you know, selling just to see what we're going to sell. Yeah, we think we can sell, close one out of every two opportunities and close 50% of our opportunities. Now, let's build our process from there that says, okay, we want to maintain that close rate. Now, how do we build our process out to scale in order to keep that close rate? And to me, that's, that's how I've done it when I've built teams, mm-hmm. is let's, let's scale from what we know an outcome is and how do we maintain that l- level of outcome as opposed to let's just focus purely on the inputs into the system. Mm-hmm. I, I, always got, uh, you know, I always got uncomfortable when somebody wanted to know what, what I thought the conversion rate was going to be before we actually did some work. You know, I, yeah. I think uh, I, I just, it's really tempting to say, okay, you know, what do you think it's going to be? How should I know? I'm, like, I'm happy to guess, but it's a guess. Uh, in, in, in my first book, uh, Mastering Your Sales Process, I talked about this, this concept called front-loading. Again, which, you know, I could claim I invented, but it's obviously something that a lot of people talk about because it's smart. But, but the idea is, you know, if, if you look at kind of all the steps that it takes to get to a sale, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you start there. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not a good idea to say, okay, they should all take about the same amount of time. That's, that's kind of a silly assumption to start with. A, right. a better way to look at it is to say, okay, so if this is where I want to get at the end of the process, what can I do early on in the process to give me a higher chance for success? Exactly. So, you know, I don't know what the number is going to be, but I know that if, if I want to be having this conversation at the end, there are things I can be doing in the beginning who I choose to talk to, how I choose to get into that conversation, how I choose to ask questions in the beginning to really see if we're a good fit together, otherwise known as qualification, right? You know, real new okay. concept. Yeah, preliminary qualification. Yeah, how can, I, how can I do, you know, what's known as discovery or needs analysis in a way that it's not only going to give me the information that I need, but give me an opportunity to position my solution. And when you, when you set it up correctly, you give yourself that higher chance to convert at the end. So I, I think you're exactly right. You know, you 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 can wind up with a with with a, with a funnel that looks you know really like this, but it just makes that that just makes it hard for everybody, right? You burn out your salespeople, you burn out your customers and your prospects. Nobody enjoys that process. Why not 
figure out what problems you solve and train your salespeople to get into conversations with people that have those problems, help them understand the solution and work gracefully towards a close. Won't work every time, but your conversion rate is going to be an awful lot higher if you begin the process thinking about where you want it to be in the end and, and really working on it in that kind of a holistic way. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I again, yeah, obviously talk to a lot of people you know, day in and day out in sales because of this podcast and the work I do. And and to me, one of the things that's just sort of become clear to me, and this is relates to the point you were, you were making, I believe, is that one thing we don't talk enough about in sales and or educate people about is winning. Right? We've got this process, and the process assumes if we do these things, we're going to get an order. Right. But there's things that have to happen at each step along the way yeah. that from a – and some of these are pretty – pretty uh, point you know, solutions are finite that make a huge difference in yeah. terms of your ultimate outcome. And uh, yeah. so when you're talking about front-loading, yeah, I, I used a similar term because I was selling very large systems, you know, multiple millions of dollars for a long time. And I knew that there was always sort of two critical points in the deal, one obviously being the end, getting the order, but there was a midpoint mm-hmm. that – I knew that if I sold to, to that point, that was pretty much the point where the customer was going to make the decision, right. yeah, we're going to make a change or not, yeah. right? We've had enough information. We can put our business case together, and we can justify going forward. Yeah, that's different than closing. It, it, it's the point in the middle of, the, of, the, of kind of the total sales conversation where the, 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 the customer turns, and, and they become— Well, they've made the decision they're going to make the yeah. change. Before then, they haven't yeah. committed to making a change. Now, the second yeah. order decision is who are you going to make the change with? But right. I knew that if I won that first one, mm-hmm. if I really focused on front-loading, as you talked about, really being high value early, early on, that when they reach that point, yeah, I might not have won the order at that point, but I, I called it, I won the sale. Yeah, It was mine. It was mine to lose at that point. Yeah, And so... Yeah, I wasn't really focused on this you know, logical, stage-driven process all the way through to the end. I was focused on that midpoint because I, I worked like hell and I got my team, everybody that worked with me, you know, sellers that I taught. That's the point you focus on. Focus on that midpoint. You win that, your odds of winning the deal, 75 80%. And if you don't win that, the odds of winning the deal are also certain. Oh, yeah. Then you stop selling to them. Right. You should know at that point. Right. So that, and that's the thing that you know, we get to with qualification. Again, we talk about winning. You know, winning's so practical. It's tactical. Yeah. You know, and and when we say everything is, you know, logical and we got these stage exit criteria and so on, it really stops people from thinking about, yeah, there's something that happens every time I interact with somebody that could make a difference between winning and losing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's almost like like we're not competing. Right? To me, part of the reason I track the sales is I'm hugely competitive, right? I'm not yeah, just I am. I like I like I like to win. I hate to lose. Um, but I was fortunate working for people that were just you know so gracious and generous and giving me advice and tips out. Well, do this here, do this here. It's the little things that you begin to accumulate over time that that becomes almost your own process. Yep. But instead of being replaced with a sort of uniform, vanilla, bland, you know, mechanized process, we go through that. It's little things with the other person that really are critical. Yep. 
I, I went through kind of an interesting change. You know, when I when I came to Budapest, I mostly worked in the region for quite some time. And uh, from about 2010 until about 2016, I kind of diverted away from a lot of the sales stuff uh, or sales consulting. I was doing a lot of intro management work. The startup scene got really hot here, and I got involved mm-hmm. in a lot of that. And, and it was only recently that I came back, and I decided, um, you know, the region is great, but it, it's a big world. And, you know, with my books, I could see that I was always getting a lot of web traffic from America. I thought, you know, let's let's start doing some content on LinkedIn. Let's see if I can generate business mm-hmm. in other places in the world. And, you know, it's it's been it's been successful and it's been fun. But as a part of that work, I started working with individual salespeople, not just sales organizations, but just individuals who would, you know, pull a credit card out of their wallet and, and pay. And it's a subset. It's a small subset. Mm-hmm. You gotta love these people. Mm-hmm. But what was really interesting was just working with these ground level reps, not in the in the context of their organization. I was doing a lot of call reviews, and and I was shocked at a lot of what I was hearing because, in in, in more than a few occasions, I was listening to reps who were were clearly kind of stepping through a demo or stepping through a discovery, and it was almost as if they they weren't even a person. I, I don't want to exaggerate it too much. But, but it was like, okay, I've asked this question. Now I ask this question. Now mm-hmm. I ask this mm-hmm. question. And I might throw out this, you know, so does that sound valuable to you? Or can you see how that would provide value? And it was, just, <laughs> it was, it was so foreign to me. Well, and you can, what you I can, know sales to be. Right. And you can hear that on calls when you listen to call recordings. is Because yep. there's always, they ask the question, the customer answers, and there's a pause. Yep. And so the pause is, they're taking a quick note, and then they're yep. scanning to the next question to ask. Yep. And it... It just becomes this thing that becomes so noticeable and so. So, is you're right. It's 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 not a conversation. It's yep. an interrogation, at best. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's an interview, and and I think that you know when when we talk about what sales really is, uh, I, I think it's it's this balance between uh, you're doing the right things the right way, but with somebody. You know, you're going through a process with somebody. Mm-hmm. These, these techniques and these frameworks and these processes, they're, they're there to kind of give us guidelines, you know, and I mean, we could go into the whole sports analogy thing, but that's just been beaten to death, right? But, it, but it's a good analogy, right? I mean, if you want to win a soccer game, kick the ball into the goal, right? But there's more to it than that. And, and it, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, there's more to it than that part that kind of gets lost when you're just going through the steps in a really mechanical fashion. Yeah, well, I, absolutely. I mean, I've, I love, love, I'm a huge soccer fan, so I love soccer analogies. But a big part of soccer is creating opportunities to score. And, and, and you can say that, but it's true at every game. But I mean, as people know, goals are sort of at a premium in soccer. And, and, and you're really measuring in some way, yeah, they're creating chances to score and shots on goal. That's very analogous to you know individual interactions you have throughout the sales process. Is are you creating an opportunity to score? Mm-hmm. And yeah, if we're if we're too robotic about it, if we're too scripted, but I, I and I don't want to put the onus on the salespeople. I, to me, this is really a cultural issue. Totally agree. Because you know, as we adopt sales processes, it's too easy for the sellers to feel. Well, even if I don't succeed, if I follow the process, that's safer. Yeah. And sometimes even very experienced people I'm seeing are falling prey to this. And yeah, I've, I've talked about this in the past. I think it's, it's, I was fortunate, I guess, when I was coming into sales, 
to work for people that were willing to give me enough rope to hang myself. Yes. And, and I took it. And maybe it's yeah. just part of my personality is, you know, I want to do it my way. But we have to get people to the point, sellers, to the point where they feel enabled to do things their way. That they become the best version of themselves, not another clone of some top person, whatever that means. But, but you're absolutely right when you say we can't really put the onus on the sellers because, you know, as I went through this process in this last year or so of talking to a lot of these reps, um, there were no shortage of them who wanted to try some of the things that we talked about and who wanted to innovate and who wanted to experiment. And that was discouraged, especially if it was at the expense of the activity metrics. Well, that and, was the point. That's such a critical point. I was about to say that. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what's constraining people, right? I've, I've got to hit this, this number. And yeah, if I vary the process and I don't succeed at first, then I'm going to get slapped. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, I think that it, you, you can, you can, you can speculate or you can observe or you can document where all that came from, but I don't think that matters. I, I think if, if an organization decides they really want to turn the tables, they, they have to recognize it as a problem. And they have to recognize that, that success comes when their salespeople work with prospects and customers as people. But that also goes up the chain, right? The sales manager, the frontline manager, salesperson relationship also has to be more than mechanical and metrics and, and KPIs and dashboards and you know the number at the end of the month. Mm. Sales coaching is something that that I just don't see happening within organizations. You know, well, I think we, right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I think part of the problem there is, and I'm sorry I didn't mean to jump on your point is is <laughs> is that we don't really tell people correctly what they should be doing when they're coaching. And so when you say coaching, what most frontline managers take that to mean is opportunity coaching. Mm-hmm. And and to me that's Okay, but you know, there's really more to it. You have to develop the person. And so I think a useful construct for people to think about it is that there's managing, coaching, mentoring. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, <laughs> I have a, a new acronym that I've been <laughs> going to be writing about, which actually is uh, POPE, P-O-P-E, uh-huh. where it's you have your process, opportunities, people, education. Uh-huh. And this is how this is how managers should be dividing their time. Is the process is is I'm capacity building, right? This is where I manage the organization. My process this is where I hire people, I recruit. I'm building the capacity of my organization. The O is opportunity coaching. Yeah, this is where I work with the people on increasing our close rates, mm-hmm. increasing our yield for revenue. The second P is people, right? I'm developing the people. Opportunity coaching doesn't develop people. What am I doing to invest in my people to help them become the, the best version of, myself, of themselves? And the E is creating a culture of learning or education in the organization. And you know, I think people should sort of divide their managers, divide their time, sort of 40, 30, 20, 10 through the, the acronym. So 40 on process, 30 on opportunity coaching, 20 on, on people development, which is really capacity building or mm-hmm. capability building excuse me first p is capacity this is capability building and then 10 percent on education mm-hmm. and we don't see anything close to that unfortunately no 
No, I, I think what's really interesting about those those categories is there's, you know, having thought about it for all of 10 seconds now, you know, there, there's at least two ways to look at it. You could look at each of these, each of these letters, each of these categories in, in a finite way. But I think what's really exciting and where it really has potential is when you start seeing how each one can impact the other, mm-hmm. how, how opportunity coaching can lead to education, how education, I mean, I haven't really thought this through, but like, I, I think you could really spend some time thinking about that. And the things that you learn from opportunity coaching should feed your development of the process. And the things that you learn when you're, when you're developing the process should dictate the kind of education that you're working on with your exactly. people. So, you know, when you start thinking about it, not only categorically, but also holistically, that's when I think you've got the power to really take your organization to the next level. But when you're stuck too much in the weeds, you know, just the metrics, which are the output of whatever's happening, instead of what's leading to that output, I I think it's really hard to make a a, a truly significant and long-lasting impact. Well, it is. And And that sort of leads to a point, which, unfortunately, we don't have enough time left to really dig into, but which is... Productivity, mm-hmm. and we have a whole <laughs> slew of frontline managers that think that productivity just has to do with hitting the activity metrics mm-hmm. or whatever metrics that they've set up, which really have nothing to do with productivity. I mean, to me, productivity is always about revenue output. About how, much rev- how about how much revenue am I producing per hour of selling time? Yeah, I mean, productivity. There's a universal measure for productivity, basically, the economists use, and yet we seem to think that sales is immune from that. We don't talk about productivity being little piece parts as opposed to the outcome. So, I don't need to go in that soapbox now, but <laughs> another time, <laughs> we'll come back and we'll, and we'll get on that. Come out to Budapest, we'll have a palinka, that's a brandy, we'll work that out. All right. Yeah, well, goulash, all that stuff. Yeah. All that stuff, you got it. All that stuff. Yeah, my wife, uh, her father, you know, is Hungarian. I think there's only like one Hungarian bakery left here in Manhattan. But every year, she used to get them a certain Hungarian cake, and I forget the name. Uh-huh. But yeah, it was really, it was tasty. Well, whipped cream involved, obviously. So um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, I've put on a lot of kilos since I've been here. Let's put it that way. I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hungarian food is very good. Yep. All right. Well, David, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So tell people they can find out more about you and connect with you. DavidMassover.com and LinkedIn are the best places to find me. And that's just David Massover after the last forward slash? Uh, That's it. Massover is like Passover, but there's only one S. (laughs) There we go. One way to remember it. All right. Well, David, it's it's been a pleasure to actually talk to you in person, Likewise. finally, after Likewise, months of communicating on LinkedIn, and I uh, look forward to doing it again. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me, and I want to thank my guest, David Massover. Join me again next week as my guest will be another David, David J.P. Fisher, or D. Fish as I call him. It's a return visit for David, and we're going to be talking about empathy. You know, the term has almost become a cliche in sales. Every seller thinks they have it. Most don't. And you'll have to join us next week to learn how to develop the ability to be empathic and to develop that deep trust-based relationship with your buyers. And you'll enjoy this conversation. So be sure to join us then. Before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House. That's the all-in-one performance accelerator at thesaleshouse.com. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes wherever you listen to it. 
leave your review. Really appreciate that. And so thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.